Hi, Danny. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Uh, super awesome and super excited about you, Seth. I am super excited as well, not just because I am the president this year, but also because I know all the cool like backstage stuff that we're doing this year, and I'm, I can't wait for Utah educators to see all of it happen. Okay, and are we going to kind of give them like a sneak peek? Absolutely. Absolutely. Today we have a sneak peek from two of the featured speakers. These are speakers that will be at the conference in a room and they'll be speaking different times during the conference from a national perspective. Um, These two speakers come from the Samsung for Education team, um, which are Micah Shippey and Dee Lanier. Oh my gosh. So listen in, but also mark your calendars. Absolutely. Mark those sessions, put them in, mark them as you're coming because... These are two that you're not going to want to miss seeing there. Absolutely. Let's jump right into it. Join UETN Homeroom at USET 23 on March 14th and 15th at the Utah Valley Convention Center. This year promises to be a great year with keynotes in a Utah Ed Chat format from local educators, including First Lady Abby Cox and Utah State Superintendent Sydney Dixon. Join presentations from experts all over Utah and around the world on a variety of topics, including technology integration, personalized competency-based learning, coaching, and more. Beyond some great presentations from UETN, explore UETN's photo booth and author meet and greet on the second floor. Register now for USET23 at uset.org. Right. We are very lucky today to have some wonderful guests that are going to be at the upcoming USET conference in March. And rather than try and introduce all of their accolades and amazing things they do in education across the country, um, we're going to have them start out by introducing themselves. So Dee, can you take it away for a second and introduce who you are? And uh, then we'll jump over to Micah. Sure thing. My name is Dee Lanier. I'm a Samsung education coach, been a long time Google innovator and trainer and one of the founders of the Google Certified Coaching Program. Also the creator, if you will, because I want to call myself a co-creator of a design thinking activity called Solving Time and also authored a book called Demarginalizing Design. Um, Mostly, I am a former teacher. I'm a father. I'm a, a husband, and I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. Micah, do you want to go ahead? Sure. Hi, I'm Micah Shippey. I'm um, Samsung's Director of Educational uh, Technology Consulting and Solutions. Um, I'm a former middle school social studies teacher. I retired after 22 years. I'm a little young to retire, but I I don't want to say I left teaching. I feel like after 22 years, I get to say I retired, right? Absolutely. Uh, Author of a couple of books, Wanderlust EDU and Reality Bites, uh, and have the the pleasure of working with a really awesome group of Samsung education coaches uh, with people like Dee Lanier. That's fantastic. And it's so great to have you both on the podcast today to talk. You said talk what you do, which is a, a lot of innovation, design thinking, and process work in your day jobs um, across your different areas as well. So we'll start off with a softball uh, question here. Why is innovation and education important? How can educators engage in innovative, in innovative processes? And how can administrators support innovations in schools? I think from a, a high level view, I'll, I'll start it off and then send it over to Dee. Um, in, innovation is necessary because the, the world of the master of content is over with. So now just as a former history teacher, just about everything is Googleable. So being the, the sage on the stage, I, I found that I had to really shift my practice and, and embrace an innovative mindset that understood that critical thinking and helping students access information in a different way and then creatively Uh, demonstrate understanding, it shifted during my career. So innovation um, as a form of not only embracing new technologies, but new strategies is paramount in education right now. Personally, I think about number one, giving a distinction between replication and innovation and much of what we have done in education for the last 50, 60, 70 years uh, is a standardization of processes and a, you know, memorization and rote regurgitation and, uh, you know, just replicating what already exists. So I know that when I was in school, my whole, the whole goal was for me to turn in something that did not surprise the teacher. It should be what the teacher expected. Right. Um, and then even in, unfortunately, in many creative spaces, uh, sometimes, um, 
the goal is to replicate something that already exists. But when you think about what the demands of the world are and what we are launching our students into, it is into a, a place where they are collaborating, right? So they're not working individually uh, and they are coming up with solutions to problems that exist. And so that requires thinking about things in new and different ways and gathering more information in order to produce something that does not already exist. So if that's a future that we are launching our students into, we need to make sure that they are prepared for that. And so that requires innovation and not replication or standardization. I love that. That just, that makes me so excited as an educator for, you know, what's in the future. It's not the same old, it is, it's new and exciting. You know, design thinking has played a really big role in both of your careers and outlooks on education. Um, why is that such an important process for educators to explore? And if teachers are new to this idea of design thinking, what are some recommendations for starting into that practice? I think one of the, the, you know, D is really our design thinking expert. Uh, for, for me, the most attractive piece to the design thinking as a framework or a model for understanding or approaching um, strategies is the importance of empathy and really understanding the, the shoes of others, the experience of others, the, the background of others and how it informs their worldview and their perspective on various tasks that um, we might bring to the table as educators. Um, I've really been happy at, at Samsung to hear um, the phrase voice of customer used all the time. You know, not only what does the expert want, but what does the what does the average user want? What is the voice of the customer? That's been really kind of exciting to hear uh, how, how we go through the design thinking process and come up with um, producibles. I think it's, it's more the wheelhouse of, of, of these expertise. So I'll, I'll let him uh, carry on this. You know, I'm over here shaking my head because I consider myself an expert in nothing but a learner, <laughs> and I am sort of obsessed with design thinking. So we'll leave it at that in terms of uh, how you would, I think, maybe describe my level of, quote, expertise in design thinking. Um, and first of all, I would clarify that design thinking is first and foremost a mindset and not a mode or a model. Uh, and that is, I think, what Micah just, just said, and that is engaging in the people who are affected by whatever said problem. And that is different than some one individual in isolation coming up with a, quote, solution to a problem without engaging the people who are affected by the problem, right? And uh, also how we define what problems are, right? So uh, problems are big and complex and they affect people and their environment and they may have detrimental outcomes if not solved uh, is is my layman's way of defining it in comparison to just coming to the solution to the puzzle right coming up with an answer to something that should be predictable uh, again when we talk about complex problems that exist we think about our environment we literally think about our world uh, we think about uh, you know different things that are affecting us in various communities there are real problems that have to be solved and so therefore having some framework for coming to solutions plural is helpful in comparison to what is oftentimes a two-step process, right? I'm gonna state the problem and then we're just gonna throw a bunch of brainstorm solutions and then the people in power are gonna pick the best one and then we're gonna go with it. And then if it fails, we'll just say, well, we, we tried our best or we did our best and we'll defend it to the hill, uh, which is really a, a very, very flawed methodology in comparison to um, taking the time, slowing down. I really think of it as, as mindfulness with others and taking the time to really analyze what is happening, how other people view the problem, how it affects them, and then hearing some of their ideas about how those things could be solved and co-creating solutions, and then iterating on those solutions as we, as a collective, see those solutions uh, work well in some cases, and in other cases, we see 
additional things that could be improved. And so it oftentimes look more, looks more like a five or six step process, again, versus a two or possibly three step process. But then also it's recursive as well, correct? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Um, so we're constantly thinking cyclically in, in many ways, right? We are thinking, uh, we've identified a problem. We've, you know, communicated with the people that are affected by it. We've done our research. We've empathized with it. We've come up with some solutions. And then we creatively, you know, share out what that solution is. We attempt it. We try it. And that is really, that launch stage is really a testing ground. Uh, now we're testing it with the people who are affected by it the most, and they are the ones who are instantly, they're the instant feedback loop. They're the ones that are that are sharing things that are working well, things that can be improved upon. And if it's a collective practice and effort, there's more buy-in and there's more you know, long-term commitment, uh, but that requires every person involved to have a collective long-term mindset versus an individual or short-term mindset. I absolutely love that. And I, one of the things that struck me about commonalities between both of your books, so I'm, I'm thinking Wanderlust EDU on Micah's side and Demarginalizing Design on your side, D, is that both of you really speak to the idea of bringing in groups that are not normally brought into the decision-making process or brought into the innovation process. And for a minute, I want to think about how do we draw students and parents into the process of designing for education, for innovating within education in a way that improves the overall experience for everyone involved. It's, it, there's a really interesting historical examples of this. In, in the 1920s, uh, parents identified the radio as emerging technology that their children needed to figure out. So there were stories of parents buying box radios and giving them to school saying, here, teach my kids. And, and so the parents, I, I think what we can learn from that is that, that parents historically want to be part of that story. And I think part of the onus is on us as educators is to make sure that we are making ways for parent voice, the voices from the homes to be part of the school community not to build up walls that assume the teacher knows best. We have to have a dynamic uh, relationship with schools. Uh, and I think I can say, I can still say we as a former teacher. Uh, and that's, that's paramount that schools and their, teaching, their parent communities are connected. However, schools are where the teaching professionals live and the teaching professionals um, should take that mantle very seriously to accept the radio, to look at it and be like, well, I'm not going to turn this on in my classroom and just listen to it, but maybe we can take it apart and talk about how this thing works and, and use some critical thinking skills related to the science of, I don't know, sound waves, but also flip it and talk about writing a script and creating a narrative to be used in this new communication technology. So that kind of hack, I think, has been part of our teaching ancestry for, for thousands of years, working backwards from emergent technology, figuring out, okay, how is this meaningful? Because initially, the attention is there. People are excited about it. Its relevance might be there. But then we have to build stages of, um, of knowledge acquisition that they can confidently approach and then have measurable outcomes, in some cases, um, to demonstrate mastery. I'm over here pumping my fist in agreement in every single way. <laughs> absolutely love, Micah, how you uh, even ended the illustration of the of the uh, radio as you know maybe they they create a narrative around that. Like just that that creative thinking, it, it just oozes from me. You can't you can't help yourself. <laughs> so I will always refer to you as still as an educator because you're always educating me. So, Thank you, sir. Um, Did yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. So, so nothing but agreements there. Uh, again, I, I'm, I'm always thinking about distinctions, right? So, oftentimes things are, are put in a binary. Uh, either or thinking is prevalent as it pertains to society in general, education specifically. And so, I think about how, again, roles are oftentimes identified as the the education system is one of which as it pertains to parents, 
parents are delegating the education to the educational system, to the school. And so delegation tends to be what is just culturally normative, not saying it is right or wrong. It's what is kind of been and it continues unless it is disrupted. Uh, but I think you know, collaboration, if that is part of the ethos of a school community, it catches on. Um, it's not normal. It is absolutely not normal for there to be a collaborative relationship between students, teachers, and parents, and uh, other community members. But there are some uh, great examples or, or some sort of uh, far off examples, kind of hard, when I say far off, it's like hard to find, but they exist, of schools that really do build a more wraparound community, more have more concentric circle models versus, you know, you drop your kids off here and then this is what happens here. And this may be silly, but I see one example as a primary way for schools to try and change the expectations of what that school community is for their students and their parents in terms of expectations. And that's at the beginning of the school year. That is uh, when you have a parent night, you know, how are those parents invited? What time is that event? Like how much effort is put into making sure that we can have as much representation as possible? Uh, how can we overcome challenges of, of time and distance and travel means and all of that? But then how do we prop up the students to be the primary facilitators of explaining what happens in the school community versus the expert and administrator just sharing and throwing information on the parents? I mean, I think during COVID, we, we saw this this opportunity arise with doing virtual parent teacher conferences and, and uh, parent meetings and, and engagement, right? Everyone got used to doing everything via virtual conferencing. So that re removed a lot of barriers for some, but what continued was the same old, same old, which is mm -hmm. I'm going to talk to you and lecture you and going to share with you all the things that we do. And then after 50 minutes, hit you with the, are there any questions? <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's thinking, no, I just want to leave now because you bored me to death and you've overwhelmed me with information. And I've even seen this in spaces where class looks very different than didactic instruction. But unfortunately, the communication to parents is still done in a format which is antithetical even to this creative slash innovative uh, environment that that the school is attempting to to produce and so i think it has everything to do with the effort from the school to create a different format as it pertains to communication with parents and that includes it being much more dialogical right how many times are questions asked in those meetings yes. to the parents frequently right and then that just that that can be messy but you know we were just bringing up design thinking it, there's still a, a systematic approach and it's very intentional but in many ways i i really want to give kudos and applause to schools that that really do integrate uh creative thinking uh innovation the arts they do really really special things and say you can if they're not already doing this, you can create a complete culture change by inviting your parents and your students into a more collaborative space, even in those parent conferences. I absolutely love that, Dee, because I, I'm just thinking back to something both of you and Micah had said over the last couple of minutes about design thinking about empathy. And I think with parents, if we're not empathizing with their position, that they may a maybe holding some residual frustrations or, or fear of what an educator can say to him in a parent teacher conference, but also the, the feelings of being judged for what might, what might be happening with their student. I think acknowledging those and empathizing with those as an educator or as an administrator can really open up some doors for better quality communication. And like you say, some real change in the classrooms. Agreed. And if I can add just one of the piece, because I think you just spoke to him at, and that is, the fact that oftentimes there's there's a cultural divide between the parents and 
the teachers, right? And that that gap can be really large unless it is attempted to be crossed, right? Mm -hmm. If it's never attempted to be crossed, then uh, I have my perspective, you have your perspective. Um, and if we have a delegation model, your job as a parent is to trust me when you drop your, your child off. My job is to, you know, instruct them. And then on occasion, my job is to inform you, right? Like that is a very non-collaborative mm -hmm. sort of uh, relationship. And if I do not understand the dynamics of who you are, what your background is, and what is happening uh, within your home, then I can never truly fully understand and support your child. And so those must, those things must change. But relationship is the same way as we say that we, the most important thing for a teacher to do is to build relationship with their students. Oftentimes that there's an extra, and this is a burden, and I want to um, definitely acknowledge that this is much, much harder and 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 also just reveals how underpaid and under-resourced teachers are if an additional expectation would be added that they really build relationship with the parents as well. I, I agree, yeah. Dean. I, I think um, you're just making me, you know, reflect on the, the systemization of education. And we've systemized it so much and created these 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 boundaries so uh, stringently that we forget that a teacher is being trusted with the single most important thing for a parent, mm -hmm. and that's their child. The single most important aspect of my life is my children, and I'm trusting my children to somebody else. And so as a parent, I need to take a step back and out, think outside of this system. And as an educator, I need to take a step back and put on my human hat and remember who I'm dealing with here. You know, when I would meet a parent or I would coach a child and see the family, I would instinctively react to that child in a different way. You know, coaching, clubs, all the things that teachers do extra, quote unquote, unpaid, <laughs> those things provide the most meaningful relationships and a relationship's first approach is fundamental for, I think, creating positive change and establishing trust with families. Absolutely. And I think, uh, Dee, you really, you capitalize on something there that even if a teacher has figured out, you know, how to collaborate with students and have them be the creators and do all of these wonderful things, when we go back to talking to parents... We're right back into like our old, you know, communication ruts. Like this is what we do and this is how we do it. And you maybe haven't even thought like, oh, dealing with humans extends beyond just our students. <laughs> Their parents are humans as well. And, you know, yeah, exactly. So we all kind of know that ed tech is full of the newest things and stuff for schools and kind of like your example with, you know, a radio being dropped off at a school. But the newest technologies can often be really overwhelming for our educators. How can educators and their administrators best approach new tech adoption in their schools? And in in your experience, who should be part of that decision-making process? You know, who who's in charge of who gets to adopt what in schools? The, the, uh, the idea around adopting new technology, and thank you for using the word adopt rather than integrate. I always feel like <laughs> in, integrate is like, you know, interla interlocking bricks like Legos, you know, shoving them together. You know, adopt is, is infers ownership and in, in, uh, meaningfully applying something new. I think there's two things that really need to happen in schools, and it's really a, in society. It's not just schools. It's human nature we're talking about. One is to understand that technology is going to amplify our practice. So it's going to make things that we do really well better, and it's gonna make things that we don't do really well worse. So if our classroom management as teachers is our uh, low point, or perhaps the area that needs the most work, um, inserting new technologies of almost any single kind is going to make that worse. So there, there are uh, teacher skills that we have to sharpen, if you will. The other thing I think that really helps is understanding, while it may feel like you're the first person to do this, it may feel like this is an uphill battle, it may feel like this is an unsurmountable task, 
Again, our teaching ancestors have been ad adopting new technology for a long time. I use the radio as an example, but my other favorite is the pencil. It took a hundred years for Chicago schools to standardize use of the pencil. The pencil. I mean, <laughs> and, and we were picking on Chicago, right? Not, not anybody in Utah, of course, because that would never happen there. But in the case of Chicago, it's, it's because they documented it. That's why we know. But here you can think about educators giving kids a new tool for the first time. See if this sounds familiar. Okay, I'm going to give them this new tool. What are they going to do with it? How will I keep track of what they're doing? How will I monitor what they're doing? Imagine that, a kid with a pencil and a piece of paper. Or how will I keep it sharp? How will I maintain the tool? All these, these ideas are the same thing we do with Chromebooks, tablets, laptops, same thing. What are they gonna do? How am I gonna keep the power on? How am I going to maintain them? So understanding that this is not the first time we have adopted new technologies, there are parallel examples, I think helps us take a deep breath and calm down a little bit as we start to explore new technologies. That's an important part of it. Uh, the other side of it is, I know a lot of times in schools, we wanna bring uh, educators into the room so we think, uh, you know, we look around and we're like, okay, who's my geek? You know, who's my Leroy Jenkins? If you don't know who Leroy Jenkins is, look it up. So I'm looking around like, who's my risk taker? Who's my gamer? Who's going to jump right in? And that's fine. I think um, people that you might call in the adoption curve innovators in that case are great to have as part of the story. But oftentimes an innovator, somebody who takes that leap very quickly, doesn't have the social commodity, for lack of a better phrase. They don't have following of other people. If someone sees Micah try out a new game in the classroom or a new strategy in the classroom, they might think, okay, that's just because Micah does weird stuff all the time. But if one of my colleagues who is a little hesitant, a little cautious, a little more moderate, but it has a lot of teaching success and respect, does it? People are going to look and say, oh, okay, I'll try that. And those are our first followers uh, in the TED Talk language of Eric Sievers, the first follower, one of my favorites. Uh, you could also call them early adopters, and they're the real change agents. They're not the first people to dive into the second. And so what I'm getting at is when we try to bring voice of educators into the room, we need to be thinking about who are the people that we want to have at the table. It's not just the geekiest people on the planet. Schools do that very often. They're like, oh, here's a, you know, this is a new 23-year-old teacher. They try new things. Yeah, but they don't really have the depth of knowledge. They don't have the, the street cred, if you will, of some of their colleagues. So balancing that out with people who have been in the, in the industry for a while and are accepting change. So I'm not talking about laggards who won't change and will sit there with their arms crossed in a meeting about technology. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the majority of people who will adopt change, but maybe a little slower, a little more cautious, and will bring up concerns that relate to how we approach this technology. What are we going to do with it? How are we going to maintain it? And they help us to be thoughtful. Dee, what do you think? Man, I just think, well, first, I think that technology is a tool, right? And so when we consider different forms of technology as tool, then we should be evaluating its usefulness, right? Its efficiency. And there are some that don't get it. Some that would say, you know, this, this uh, rock and hammer and chisel has worked perfectly fine for me. <laughs> um, in comparison to a pencil, just to use to run with that analogy a little bit more, but it does definitely involve uh, the people who are willing to adopt the newer and to try it and to showcase what they are doing with others. Then I also think, you know, the real linchpin is professional development and coaching. But when I did work with Digital Promise and Google and we I uh, had the privilege of eventually creating what is now known as the uh, certified coaching program. It really revealed itself as a second digital divide. The difference, you know, the first the first uh, form of digital divide that we're often most familiar with and speak about is, uh, you know, access of so students and teachers um having access to certain pieces of hardware and software and internet access and largely especially in many urban areas those gaps have been filled and so great now we have more access more than ever we have high-speed internet in classes we have devices of various sorts we even are now in many spaces 
uh, taking inventory of what is internet access like at home and then also providing resources for students. So we, we, we are much better than we were positionally in terms of bridging those gaps. And there's still a long way to go in many areas, especially rural. Um, but nonetheless, that's just the first, the first uh, digital divide. The other divide is uh, teachers actually having professional development, having training on how to use, and then having ongoing support in continuing to learn how to use. And so that's where coaching comes in. And yeah. some of the research done by Digital Promise um, revealed that the difference between two schools, so you can have two identical in the form of how much technology is present within the school and internet access being with the student population. So they could be very similar in that regard, but uh, in one space, technology is being utilized a ton, and then another space, technology is being utilized in a very minimal capacity. What comes to mind is just, you know, creating digital worksheets. What's the difference? Well, the difference is, is the teachers in this community having access to professional development, high quality professional development, being a part of personal learning networks. So they are they have people who are helping and supporting and actually having a role and position of a coach who is just like an instructional coach. I'm here to help you enhance your practice. And my job is to help you get more comfortable and to do you know, better with what you are attempting to utilize within your classroom setting. And so um, those things, that combination of things of having a, a personal learning network or having a community and network, having access to high quality professional development and having ongoing coaching really seems to be a significant difference between those that have and have nots, if you will, as it pertains to technology use and adoption powerful like both both of you that was incredible answers and i love that you're both diving into this idea of it's got to be something that is holistic everyone needs to be involved um that there needs to be training that there needs to be ongoing pd and i love that you're both bringing in this idea of coaching and early adopters and coaching those early adopters to to move forward um it's now time for our student question i'm katie from conwood high school my question is as an audience member, who is your favorite educational speaker? Why are they such a good speaker? Oh man, I wasn't ready to pick one. He go ahead. You can do a person. couple if you want. <laughs> this is this is easy, but it's cheating. This one is easy for me, but it's so cheating. I mean, it's it's my buddy, my brother, my uh, one of my best friends on the planet, Ken Shelton. Um, so it won't be though. I will I will change it up and say the venue won't be me just to go to, you know, listening to one of his keynotes or going to one of his sessions, though I definitely learn a ton from him in those particular uh, spaces. But is he and I going to get coffee and sitting down and chatting? And uh, yeah, that's that's not even, I have no hesitation in answering that question. It's being able to uh, talk about some of the, the deeper issues happening. Ken is very... Um, he will always push things back to interrogating what is happening on the system level and not just looking at the educator as an individual practitioner and what they are responsible for doing and doing different. You know, he's, he's definitely a huge proponent of that, but he's, he's uh, a provocateur, if you will, of what is normative on the system level and what needs to be changed there what policies must be adapted what are the expectations that if you you know kind of do the revolutionary thing no holds bar i'm going to risk it all approach in education for some that may be you know incredibly detrimental to their career and for others they may get awards for it and so uh how do you ensure that on a on a top level those things are being encouraged as we speak about innovation and education, you know, who will be punished versus who will be rewarded. Um, he, he takes that approach and I think he's become contagious because I now look at everything through that lens. You're so good at that, D. You're so well prepared. I, I totally agree. <laughs> Ken Shelton is a, is a rock star. Uh, he helps stretch my thinking every time I hear him speak. Uh, there's others. Um, 
if I, it depends on my mood. I think sometimes if, if I, if I want a little tug at the heartstrings, um, I listen to Jeff Heil. You know, Jeff Heil has a, a fantastic experience working with underserved populations. And when he speaks and tells me about his students and his homeless population, um, it makes me want to be a better teacher for every student that I serve. Uh, when I hear Ari Fluelling speak uh, about uh, her experiences um, as, a, as a minority in education, you know, it's, it's just different. It's, it's a different experience that's different than mine, and it increases my mindset and my worldview and helps me to be more empathetic towards the experience of others. And of course, my, my buddy, Jesse Levinsky, he's um, one of the most well-prepared speakers, I think. I think he studied stand-up to come up with the deliver and the punchline <laughs> that uh, can bring a meaningful laugh to the uh, ed tech conversation. I love those answers. And we asked you that because we have a conference coming up that you both will be present or speaking at. Um, it's the USET conference. And USET is a conference that focuses on sharing innovative practices with technology and, and really beyond. What do you see as some of the best practices schools have adopted during the pandemic throughout the U.S.? And did the pandemic create more or less opportunities for innovation in schools? I think the, the pandemic created more financial opportunities with ESSER funds, mm -hmm. um, but but with ESSER funds, uh, it, it's like having it's like winning the lottery. I mean, I, I know it's not really fair to say about education because we don't have enough money as it is. But uh, imagine you know you won the lottery and, and you don't have guidance on how to spend the money, and you know some of the the best um, uh, plans I've seen out there are really based on the, the iterative process of recycling new, getting ready for more, getting ready for more, maybe upscaling a little bit, but understanding that technology does have a shelf life. So some of the best plans have been not thinking about the here and now and the latest and greatest. It's it's what's going to stay with us duratively and what organizations, what organizations are gonna be here in 10 years? Cause there's some real big flash in the pan organizations out there. They're doing some pretty cool stuff. But, but who's been around for a while and who's going to be here in 10 years to support us if we want to do more or, or be more or, or um, invest in more uh, tools within a, a specific technology company's ecosystem? So we've seen that. We've also seen a, a stretching of thinking. Um, I, I think that we saw how automation can help with some of our teaching tasks, um, but automation is also a dangerous thing. I, I found myself... Um, um, excited that I could get through grading papers really quickly with a Google form, but then realized I'm not really providing uh, the feedback to students that's going to help them grow the most. So shifting to paperless, and many schools hadn't before the pandemic, but that forced disruption uh, helped us to understand that uh, a digital transition is good. Now it's time to make sense of it all and to look mm -hmm. back at our change in practice, a change in survival mode. And now, okay, how do we make it meaningful? And you know, as Dee pointed out, one of one of my favorite things is thinking of professional development as the solution for adoption. So we want to really adopt new change and new strategies that comes from coaching and guidance. It's it's not it's not always natural. We have to have thought leadership and someone to to guide conversation. Oh man, yes and amen. I just keep <laughs> nodding my head over here. I don't know why I need to add anything, but um, I will say. I am pleasantly surprised in some instances where new practices have been put in place and most importantly, you know, better spectacles have been put on in order to see what is happening in students' lives, their social and emotional well-being, um, what life at home uh, can or is in certain cases you know, what controls teachers intend to utilize for, you know, for good purposes, but in a remote setting or a distance learning setting, uh, you know, it's like you don't have those controls. And so um, what does it mean for an educator to consider and to think differently about, okay, I have a, a less controlled environment and if I cannot stipulate whether or not a student has their camera on, uh, most in, mostly because we cannot uh, stipulate that they showcase what they have behind them, right? right. Um, 
and that could be siblings. <laughs> um, that could be, you know, a number of things. Um, you know, when you know, creativity is oftentimes bred out of constraint, and I think the pandemic, you know, created all kinds of constraints uh, that were really, really tough for schools and educators in general to figure out. But in many cases, they figured some things out, right? Like they they realized, oh, if we make sure that our students have access to technology and we do certain things differently in order to engage our students. So I realized I don't have a controlled environment where it is mandated that you all have your heads up, that you have your hoodies off, that you're looking at me when I'm speaking to you for 30 minutes and that you are taking notes, right? Like when those controls are gone and there are different constraints that teachers have to think about, I think some, some good practices came in, in replacement to some of those things um, and like creative ways to engage students, w creative ways to, uh, it's like if a teacher is constantly asking themselves, how do I have my student uh, pay attention today? How can I potentially trick them, if you will, into turning their camera off and wanting to show their face? Like, how do I do that? Like that, that sort of reimagined way of engaging students. I think it's a really, really powerful opportunity. And, you know, what are some different uh, technologies that could be utilized that encourages interaction, right? So what are the pair decks and the Nearpods that are out there? So versus me just giving you information that is having you interact with me uh, back and forth. Uh, you know, so they're learning new practices, learning new tools. Some of the teachers that may not have saw um, ed tech professional development as crucial to their to their personal development noticed that it is and so they started you know developing themselves and developing with community so there are lots and lots of opportunities I think some teaching strategies and, and engaging more blended learning practices right so these are all great things now in some cases definitely not all so I, I, I definitely don't want to Put a negative swath the generalization out there but in some cases i've noticed and i'm thinking about my own kids experience right once students came back into the building it was a return to quote normal when there really was an opportunity to create a referendum on that entire perspective to notice that certain things were never working right those things never work like when a student has full agency to say i don't want to pay attention to you anymore watch this i'm gonna turn off my my camera um i have better things to do i am going to right, right like when a sixth grader has the same amount of agency as a university student right we have to draw the parallels and see what's what's happening here well sometimes it's it's, it's not engaging practice it does not actually uh require that students have interaction with you. It just requires that they look like they are taking notes and that they test well. So again, I, for, for all the schools and the teachers that have continued on the pathway of thinking how to engage students differently and to use different practices to do so, I am more than ecstatic to uh, see as examples and to support as a practitioner as well. That's fantastic, Dee and, and Micah. We, we could not agree with you more on all of those points. And I kind of want to, I think any listener would have a good idea of what your sessions that you set may look sound and what, what they'll learn from you. But what can they expect from you? What kind of things are you planning on presenting? What kind of ideas would you like to share with Utah teachers and administrators? I have um, I have about three things I want to be sharing about. One is um, a people first approach to tech rollouts. So what I'm talking about there is a deeper dive into this adoption curve. How do we strategically understand the people part of adopting new technology? Because it can be very strate strategic and not manipulative. It brings a whole group of people in. Um, I'll be doing a, a very basic, let's get messy hands-on design thinking workshop where we'll go through uh, an empathy-driven approach to creating uh, end results. A lot of fun to do. I've used it with my seventh and eighth graders. They really enjoyed that process. And then talking about uh, emergent technology and how it's informing um, 
the workforce. So not only the future of education, but the future of work and talking about how there's different skills that we need to adapt uh, in order to, or adopt, in order to better prepare students for their future, which is quite different than our past. And I will be bringing a combination of things that are from two of my published works, one being um, my book and demarginalizing design, really, which is perspective building, but is very much interactive. And so we will ha have conversation over these things that, you know, speak to is really mindset over mo mode first, motor model first, and um, really, again, take borrowing from one of my best friends and Ken Shelton, when you trouble the narrative, uh, it then at least causes you to pause and to think, huh, if this is the way that we've always done things, there's a perspective that at least interferes with that being the best way necessarily for all people. So let's look at that a little bit more critically and then let's work more collaboratively as a community, right? I'm using things that in and of themselves are not normative oftentimes in schools, right? It's a specialist who is an expert who then individually delivers and is rewarded. Um, and so we will dive deep in some interactive process there. Uh, and then speaking of process, we will utilize some design thinking um, using Solve in Time, which is really a rapid prototyping tool for coming up with solutions to problems that exist that can be extended to a project that could really be a uh, long-term. And so really driving the distinction between problem-based learning and project-based learning and seeing also how they are not opposed, but they can complement one another. That's awesome. I mean, I'm excited. I'm yeah. ready. Is it is it happening yet? It's it's going to happen very soon. And I, I don't know about Danny. I'm sure she's feeling the same way, but I could listen to both of you talk about education yes. all day. Um, we are so appreciative of your time and your thoughts about innovation, about design thinking and about and that you're coming to Utah to join us and share some of your ideas as well. Excited to be there. Can't wait. Well, I was excited about you set before. But I'm even more excited about it now. Those two were incredible. Yeah, and they're just one of a few speakers that we're going to have at USAP. But we'll get to that in a second. I just absolutely love Dee and Micah's energy and how positive they are about how to do innovative practices in schools, how to bring in the community, how to make everyone feel accepted and part of the, the overall schema. Absolutely. And I think part of the way that they did that was acknowledging this idea of people first, like we are all humans in here who, you know, are trusting teachers to teach our kids, trusting parents to take care of those students at home. And there's this whole environment of trust and this relationship that's often really, really neglected. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was just really powerful the ways that they were talking about getting community involved and having parents be a part. And it, I love that they started with it starts at back to school night. Absolutely. And it starts in PTCs. Yes. Yes. I, I think that's such a valuable thing to take away from this is having clear, open communication where it might be just acknowledging how fragile people feel. Yes. And then moving forward with that fragility and looking for ways to help each other out, not decline each other's and, and make each other feel awkward. Yes. And that's kind of like one of the things that we got from the pandemic, I feel, is that like we need to be more empathetic. Everyone's having a hard time. And I think going along with that is not just going back to, okay, we're back to normal. You know, we should never be back to normal. That changed us. That changed our processes for the better, I think, in a lot of cases. So let's take what it changed for the better and, and roll with it. How can we make education more accessible to parents? Absolutely. And if you're looking for ways to learn more about how to change education, become an innovator, Yikes. come check out USET March 14th and 15th. Um, we have a few national guests. Uh, Micah and Dee definitely will be there. Um, we're also bringing in a national Google expert, Eric Kurtz, um, as well as we'll have sponsored rooms by Google and Apple and all sorts of um, ed tech companies. Our keynotes this year are coming from Utah Education, all layers of it. So we have all the way from um, First Lady Abby Cox and State Superintendent Sid Dixon down to 
a student at a school in Iron County. So we're working with a lot of layers there. Check out the schedule just to learn more about that. But it's really exciting to see all of these different voices in education in Utah coming together to speak at USET. Are, are we talking about Abby Cox, friend of the program, Abby Cox? Exactly, I feel like yeah. she's been on twice, so now she's just She's a definitely of a, a recurring guest for okay. sure, yeah. Okay, just making sure. Um, and what are you most excited about? And you can't say that it's over. I know as USET president, <laughs> I know the stress that you're under, but what, what are you most excited about this conference, Matt? So there's three things that like, so I'm excited about all of our speakers. Like I, we have some of the best in Utah, best in the country coming to USET. But for me this year, we're instituting three new areas that I'm really excited about. So in our expo area, we're going to be working with the Utah STEM Action Center to do a uh, makerspace. So you can go and learn how to do 3D printing and all sorts of stuff that they're going to be doing in that space as well as we have some speakers in that space as well. Number two is in the expo area, we're working with the, the Friends of the Salt Lake Public Library System to have a book sale for educators for K-12. So they'll be selling um, donated and discarded books for a very cheap price to any educator that wants to stop by and grab some books for their classroom or for their students or for their, their uh, child. And then the last one is we're working with the ULEAD initiative at the State Board of Education to run the Highlight High which is a poster area session that will happen just north of the keynotes. Um, and then my favorite thing I know I'm, 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 is that we're doing the keynotes are called Utah Ed Chats this year. And okay. so based off of the Ed Chat on, on um, Twitter, uh, and those are short TED style talks where educators will be able to share their passion points in Utah education. So lots of really good things to look forward to this year. All right. We hope to see you all there. See ya. 